You're listening to audio from Calvary Gravenhurst in Muskoka, Ontario. For more resources or to connect with someone in the church, please visit calvarygravenhurst.com. This week's sermon is taught by lead pastor Benjamin Emery. church. It's great to have you in the service with us kids, young people, because you're a part of the church and you're a valuable part of the church and someday you'll be old like I am and you'll be hopefully running the church and so it's great to have you here. My name is Benjamin. I'm one of the pastors here and before we get into uh, the most famous sermon ever, I just want to uh, invite you, if you have been coming here for over six months and you would consider this your church uh, and you uh, desire to be a part of it and you desire to serve in it and uh, be a part of the work that's going on here, we'd encourage you to pick up a membership covenant and read it over and look at becoming a member. Uh, Because if you lived in that time and you became a Christian, well, you might die for it. You might lose your business for it. You might get thrown into your family. But we don't have that here in Canada. So one of the things, ways we know, or at this church at least, that we distinguish who's really in it and who's just a part of it uh, is through membership because the members are the ones that really have a voice in steering the church. And so we have some big decisions coming up in the next few months. And so if you're invested in this church, you've been coming for at least six months, then might be something to consider. So if so, pick up a membership covenant, read it over, give me an email this week, um, and we would look to have you voted in uh, on the May 15th members meeting. Also, I just want to encourage you uh, to thank our volunteers. If you're a part of Ready Men, if you're a part of the women's ministries, if you come to the seniors events, if you're going to be at the newcomers lunch downstairs, there are some few group of like ladies, uh, less than 10, that uh, tend to do most of the cooking and prepare these great meals like the pulled pork we had at Ready Men. And they pour themselves into it with love. And we never want them to think that they are just somebody that we can use and not uh, be thankful for. And so if you see Karlovich or Kathy Barron uh, or Bonnie or any of the other ladies, uh, make sure you thank them for the hard work that they do. Now, pick up your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, pick up the one in the seat in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, take that one as our gift. It's free. We want you to take it. And open up to Matthew chapter 5. We are going to be looking at the greatest sermon ever preached, preached by King Jesus, Sermon on the Mount. And over these next 18 weeks, we're going to go through uh, verse by verse from chapter 5 all the way to the end of chapter 7. And we are going to look at what has been called the Constitution of the New Testament or the character of a Christ follower or the map through the kingdom of God or the directions to God's heart or the way that Christ desires those who follow him to live or what I'm calling this sermon series, a manifesto of the king. So let's pray. Lord Jesus We don't come to you, we believe you're real. We don't come to you thinking you're just another person or just a false god or one of many gods. We believe you are the way, the truth, and the life. That in the beginning you did create 
the heavens and the earth and you did separate light from darkness and you did make man and woman in your own image. We believe you came and lived and died as a human being for our sins. We believe that you're living inside of those who follow you and we believe that you're coming again. But Lord, we also know that we haven't reached the pinnacle, at least I haven't, of what you desire me to be. And I want to show my love to you by becoming what you want me to be. And I pray that for each and every person in here, whether they've been coming to church all their life or they're new, that they would hear the words that you said and they would desire it to happen in them and that you would do it in them. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to picture the scene of this. It had been about half a year since Jesus had come on to the scene, we could say. Started making waves in Galilee. Before Jesus came on, John the Baptist was the man. He was this strange man who was bringing people out into the desert to seek after him and to hear his message, to repent and get ready because the Messiah is coming. And they didn't even really notice when Jesus walked into the scene where John was baptizing people. And as quickly as he was baptized, he left for 40 days. And for 40 nights, he was in the desert being tempted by Satan. And then he recovered from that. And and he came back onto the scene and he chose 12 uh, men to follow him. And some ladies followed after him. and, And then he was just kind of there. And then all of a sudden, it tells us in uh John, or sorry, in Matthew 4.23, that just like that, he started preaching and teaching and healing every kind of disease and casting out demons. And so within a few months, he is now the superstar. He's now drawing crowds of people from the corners of the nation, even from other nations, uh, from Galilee and Jerusalem and Judah and beyond the Jordan, which means into foreign nations. They're coming to see this man called Jesus, uh, this miracle worker, this uh, guy with a message that can cast out demons. And so they're all drawn, it tells us, to this area uh, just outside of Galilee, along the Sea of Galilee. I've been there. I've stood on this place. Uh, it's, we call, or the Bible calls it a mountain, but to us, when we think of a mountain, like Mount Everest, it's not that. It would be a large hill, a hill too large for you to stand on top of and yell down so people could hear you at the bottom, but large enough that you could get up within five or ten minutes. And so I want you to imagine this scene. Droves of people are coming, crowds of people Rich and poor, simple and educated, Jew and Gentile, Pharisees side by side with uh, farmers and scholars uh, next to the illiterate and religious men in the same crowd as prostitutes. They came in crowds for days they traveled, ready to receive healings, ready to receive miracles, ready to meet this man who they thought was going to relieve them of their burden that Rome had placed on them. I can picture it. Can you picture it? There they are. The disciples are excited. Oh, finally, we're going to be famous because of Jesus. Look at all these people. And the people coming, oh, finally, we get our healings. We get our our stuff. It's going to be great. 
And then Jesus does something unexpected. Look at it in verse 1. When he saw the crowds, he went up the mountain. He didn't stay in the valley. He didn't go out to greet the crowds. He didn't command the disciples to line everyone up in, in nice, neat lines so they could receive their healings and their blessings. It says he went up the mountains, leaving the multitudes behind. And then after that, it says he sat down and his disciples came to him. He didn't stand on a ledge and so the crowd could see him. He didn't even stand. His positioning says that he's not interested at this moment in the crowds, but he sat, letting his disciples know that he's interested in them coming to see him. And sure, some of the crowd would have probably come up the hill to see, but they wouldn't have been able to hear, or at least not many of them would have been able to hear. Why is this? Well, Jesus knows his fame is spreading. He knows his hour is coming. He knows things are going to get really busy. And before things get really busy, he has a few things to tell his disciples. What I need us to understand as we dive into this uh, message, this manifesto, is that the Sermon on the Mount was specifically, primarily, for those who follow Jesus Christ. You say, what are you trying to say? That Jesus didn't want the multitudes to hear the laws of his kingdom? Are you saying that he left those people who had really come to receive healings and, and blessings and really had no idea who this Jesus was or, or had gotten any of the teachings so far that the disciples had gotten, uh, that he just left them um, so he could go and teach his disciples for a little bit? That's what I'm saying at least for 20 minutes or half an hour, which is about the amount of time it would take to preach through these, this message. He left the miracle seekers so that he could train up some men and some women so that he could then go back and attend to the multitudes so that these men later, when Jesus would die and ascend to heaven, that they could be a blessing on the multitudes who were left. The masses would not have appreciated the laws that Jesus was about to lay out. They would not have wanted to obey these things. Uh, they weren't coming for laws. They were coming for healings and miracles. This was only for those who had already committed to following Jesus. His sermon was not for the Pharisees. It was not for the Roman soldiers. It was not for the poor farmers. It was for the disciples the ones who were already following him. And, and we shouldn't expect the world or get upset when the world isn't following the Sermon on the Mount. We shouldn't expect them to. They love the world and the things in the world. Only somebody who loves Christ would want to live by this. This is for you, Christ follower. This is for you, sinner who's been saved. This is for you, truth seeker. This is for you, one who walks the narrow way. This is for you. It's not for the rest. It's Christ's manifesto for living in the kingdom of God while you're still on the earth. 
A manifesto is a public declaration of principles, of policies, of intentions. It's more about being than doing or having. It's the way we are called to manifest our love and devotion to the King, King Jesus. And we don't have the abilities in us, but when the Spirit of God comes to reside in us, He works in our spirit, giving us the ability to actually manifest these things. It's what He's calling His disciples to manifest. Do you see it, church? Do you see Him? God who came didn't just come to save sinners. He came to proclaim a kingdom, a kingdom that would be built and live inside of human beings like you and I. And that is God's desire for each and every one of you, not just to be a church goer, but to be the church, to have God living in you so that you point to him. I like that little... uh, thing that the actors did on The Chosen. Obviously, that's not in Scripture, but it's a good indication of what this is about. It's a map. We are a map when Christ lives in us and through us so that people in this world, in this lost world, can see us and see that there's a God who is alive. We are signboards pointing to Jesus. So we shouldn't get up when the world says, I don't want this. We should get worked up when the church says, I don't want this. Because we live in the kingdom of God or we live in the kingdom of darkness. Jesus said in Matthew, in John 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this world. Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 14, he, God, delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into his kingdom of his beloved son, into whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. Do you get it, what I'm saying? Do you understand That there are two kingdoms in this world. There is the kingdom that everyone else lives in. And there's the kingdom of heaven that is being built on earth through us. And this is the way that those who follow him are to live. Well-known evangelist who died 85 years ago, G. Campbell Morgan said this about this exact scene. He says, who are these men to whom Jesus is speaking? Souls loyal to his kingdom. Jesus never gives his laws of his kingdom to any except those who are in his kingdom. And no man can have the benefits of the kingdom until he has kissed the scepter of the king. When a man bows to the king, then he is obligated to the king and must obey the laws of the king. So let me ask you, Christian, whose laws do you live by? When those little children that are amongst you look at you and as they grow and and examine you, what world do they see you living in? When you're at the Swiss Chalet or Boston Pizza and the waitress hears you talking and, and the way you treat the waitress, would she see something different about you? Or do you sound and look like everyone else? Your neighbors that look through their windows and hear the way you talk to people, your spouse, your kids, what would they say about you. For this nation doesn't need another denomination of Christianity. But what this nation and what this world is waiting to see 
is a simple devotion to the Christianity that we've already been given. A simple demonstration of the manifestation of Jesus living in us. Jesus climbs the mountain, sits down, gets comfortable, opens his mouth to his disciples, and is about to say in the next few sentences and make something very clear, extremely clear, point blank, His single inclusive fact in the next 10 verses is this, that the kingdom of heaven is primarily manifested in our character, not in what we own, not in even what we do necessarily, but in who we are. The kingdom is either in us growing and manifesting itself, or the kingdom is not in us. Character is supreme in the kingdom of God. In these next 10 verses, we see what is known as the Beatitudes. Beatitude means supreme, blessed, supremely blessed, or supreme happiness. Blessed means to be happy. We hear blessed in our North American, we hear Joel Osteen, and oh, we think, oh, blessed means more money and and lots of health and an easy life. But that's not what blessed means. As I was studying this, if you look at blessing in the Greek in the original language, it means this. It's when God extends his benefits to someone or something, allowing them to be happy. Not a happiness in the world, not a happiness like I eat a steak and I'm happy or I get a new car and I'm happy. It's supernatural. It's when God reaches into the natural and extends his benefits, allowing us to have a supernatural happiness. So nine times in a row, Jesus will use this word, blessed, blessed, happy. Happier is the one. Happier are those who do this. Nine times he will talk about character. This is all to do with our character. Not accomplishments, not possessions. The world says you'll find it out there. Christ says you'll only find it in his kingdom. Four of these Beatitudes, which we'll look at today, are passive. Then the next four are active. And the last one is more of a process, which we'll we'll look at those last five next week. But here we go. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is there. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? We might think it's somebody who walks around crying all the time or or thinking low of themselves, but it has nothing to do with that. To be poor in spirit means to be truly subject. And to be truly subject means you are willing openly to be ruled by something. That is what it means. If you're subject to the king, it means you are under the authority of the king. And if you're subject to God, it means not that you fight against that, but you willingly bow the knee to say, I am yours and I will do whatever the king asked me. That is what it means to be poor in spirit. Not prideful, not puffed up, I'm not listening to the king. No, it's whatever you say, my Lord. I will submit to you, Lord. I will submit to your word. I will submit to other Christians who bring valid observations to me. And I found that a lot of Bible-believing Christians, that means most of you, say, you know, 
well, yeah, I believe the Bible is 100% God's word, and I submit to that. And yes, I want to be uh, submit to the Holy Spirit when I feel a conviction. And, and yes, I want to be a part of a church, and I understand that when a Christian brother or sister brings a, a valid concern to me, I should submit to that and submit to the leadership. And, and that's a lot of, most people will say that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh-huh. But unfortunately, that isn't always the case. Unfortunately, a handful of times in my almost seven years here, I've brought things to people, members specifically, because the member's like, I'm in it. I'm really, I'm the real deal. I'm, a, I'm your brother. I'm your sister. I can think of this one time. And, and Madam, unfortunately, three quarters of those times, they haven't received it and they've left the church. I can think of this one time. It was in my first year here and the person was a member. And I'll be very vague so that you can't know who they are. And most of you wouldn't know who they are. But something was brought forward to me from various people throughout the community, some in the church and some out the church, that this person who is a member of the church, who said they love Jesus and submitted to his word and, and under the authority of him, was living in a way that was blatantly immoral. And they were making a mockery of uh, their family, and they were making uh, an embarrassment of the name of Christ, and they weren't representing this church very well in their conduct. And so I went to the person and I said, is this true? Yeah, it's true. Do you see why God has been very clear that this is not something that you're being involved in? I hear what you're saying. But I believe that God wants me to be happy. Because God is a God of love, and therefore God wants me to be happy. And so I feel that he's brought this in my life. That was essentially the conversation. And I can see that you can't, Accept that, and so I'm leaving the church. Right? It's like, great, I'm in it. I want to serve. I want to be one of Christ's followers until it's something that I have to submit that I don't want to. And unfortunately, that's sometimes the way we are as Christians. We're like, yeah, I love Jesus, but I don't really want to submit to him. I don't really want to have a, I will be in poor in spirit to be ruled by Christ. But it's actually simpler than we think. It's like very simple. A person who is poor in spirit is willing to be ruled, and therefore their life will be ruled. They're not perfect, but for the most part, their life will be ruled by God, by his word, and by the Holy Spirit. They're a person who's willing to be accountable to other people. Uh, like, they're, they don't just, they're not always on the defensive. They don't keep a secret life. They're willing, they want to make Christ proud. They want to live a life of righteousness. The person can be smart, the person can be gifted, they can be powerful, but their intellect, their giftedness, and their power is all under the submission of King Jesus. God will manifest in that sort of person a peace amongst the church. Meaning, those brothers and sisters are often the ones that are at peace with their brothers and sisters. The world may hate them, but in amongst Christians, but those who aren't poor in spirit, I find, are often in conflict with other Christians. There's often disarray. They're often getting upset at other Christians. They're often, uh, there's often just conflict because their spirit is not a spirit that is poor. Blessed is, are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Number two, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Mourn over what? Mourn over their sin. 
mourn over their personal sin, not their spouse's sin, not their kid's sin, although those are things you mourn over, but primarily over their sin. Because they're subject to the king, let's follow this Jesus' thinking, because they're subject to Jesus and his word, when they realize they've hurt God, right, which sin does, it hurts God, right, just as a spouse who says something nasty or cheats on the other spouse, it hurts that spouse. When they realize they've hurt God, they mourn over that. It's not just like, whatever. And, and the same is when they hurt another brother or sister, right, they mourn over that. The person who mourns is somebody who is aware of their deficiencies, their inadequacies, inadequacies, their hypocrisy. Not to get caught in the, the place where you're perpetually feeling bad about your sin you did 20 years ago, because that isn't what God desires you. But there's a recognition that, oh, I am not worthy of this grace that I've been given, and therefore I won't treat it like it's just something to be used and abused. Because here's the promise. Look at it. Blessed, happy are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So they don't live in that place of always feeling bad. They be, gain happiness because they're like, oh, I am a sinner, and yet I've received grace. They've been comforted by the comforter. But you have to be careful. There are some people, and you may be one of them, and I've caught myself doing this lots of times, where you can feel sorry, but then you add the but, that dreaded but after the apology. I'll give you an example. God, I'm, I'm really sorry I shouldn't have stole that money from my work. But you never provide me with enough money, and so I had to. Or the Christian who's hurt another Christian. You know, I'm, I'm really sorry. I shouldn't have said those things about you. But you've been really kind of annoying me lately, and, and you really can't get your act together, and so that's why I did it. See, what the but does is it erases the apology. Because the but says, I'm just doing what I have to do, that I really don't feel bad. I haven't really mourned over the fact that I hurt you, God, or I hurt another Christian. And what that is, is we justify in our minds that even though we have to apologize, our behavior is acceptable. But look what Jesus says. He's preaching in Luke chapter 16, and the Pharisees are there. And there it says that in verse 14, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, Jesus is talking about money, who were lovers of money, heard all of this and were scoffing at Jesus. They're laughing at him. They're making fun of him. <laughs> and then Jesus said to them, you're the ones who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. And so whenever we justify ourselves by the but, by not a repentant, I'm sorry for my behavior, we justify ourselves in our head. Number three, Blessed are the humble. Another word you might see in your translation as meek. Blessed are the humble or the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness does not mean you're a wuss, does not mean you're a doormat. To be meek means to be in a position of strength or power or giftedness, whatever, but to restrain it. Do you get what I'm saying? To be meek means to have the ability to do something, to hurt someone in some way, shape, or form, to act prideful or arrogant or, or uh, lord yourself over somebody, but to walk in a way that is restrained. And so 
the husband, okay? And if you, if you realize what the rest of the world is like, they don't walk in meekness, right? We have to say, oh, well, everybody does it. No, everybody doesn't do that. Get real. Have you read history? Like, have you gone to communist China or Afghanistan or Iran or, or Russia or, or South America or, or Africa or, or atheist agnostic Canada? Like the rest of the world, meaning anyone who lives, not anyone, but most people who live outside of the kingdom of God, what they pride themselves on is themselves. So most of the world and most of history has a history of this. The strong take from the weak. Men force themselves upon women. Children are beaten and sold into slavery. The rich steal from the poor. The strong beat up the weak. 1% control 45% of the earth's wealth. This is the norm for the kingdom of darkness that most people walk in. But the Christian walks in the kingdom of God, where the strong protect the weak. Where it's not about yourself first, it's about service to others first. Where I might be able to beat you up and take your stuff, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to protect you. Where I'm going to take these little ones, the Christ is talking about and Dustin preached about, those vulnerable ones, and I'm going to protect them. It doesn't mean they stand by and watch atrocities. No, if a man is, if somebody's hurting a woman, they're getting in the middle of it. They take the hit. They protect those little ones. They protect the church from wolves in sheep's clothing. But a Christian man doesn't dominate his wife into submission. A Christian man loves his wife into submission, even though he could beat her up most likely. And in the same sense, even though Canadian and Western women have the ability, they're protected by laws, and so some of them say, oh, well, I'll dominate my husband because he can't do anything. I'll just call the cops on him and take the kids away and take half his stuff, right? Even though she might have the ability to walk in arrogance and pride, she doesn't. She serves and loves her husband even though he's annoying sometimes. In the kingdom, leaders don't use their position for gain, personal gain. They use their position to protect. It's, it's almost the exact opposite of the kingdom of the world. So understand this. Humility comes from being ruled by the king. It comes from a, an attitude of realizing your own inadequacies and a desire to represent Christ well and to protect other people. And because we are meek, God blesses us. That's the promise. That, that they will inherit heaven on earth. That they will be the ones that God promotes because he is proud of them. In fact, we can see that meekness or humility is power restrained because Jesus did it. Matthew eleven twenty nine. Jesus says this, Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Was there ever a more powerful person than Jesus, the creator and sustainer of everything? And yet he invites you to take on his attitude, which is humble and meek, power restrained. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the kingdom of earth. Last one, 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Again, this follows a progression that Jesus has been on of transforming, teaching the disciples a different way of living. As you bend your knee to the king in submission to him, he rules you. He changes you. As you see your own personal sin and inadequacies and seek him, he comforts you and uh, heals you. And then as you walk in humility, he blesses you and furthers your ministry. And then as he blesses you, you desire righteousness to do right, to build his kingdom. Don't make it as a person just doing nice things because it's so much more than just doing nice things. It's this, that a person starts to have passion for the kingdom of God. There's a kingdom of darkness, they realize, and their passion is, oh, I don't just want to build into this world that's fading away. I want to build into this world that's going to last forever. Don't miss Jesus' saying of hunger and thirst. He's saying something there. Those, it's not just those who want righteousness. It's those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I can remember several occasions when overseas we would set up food distribution lines, Okay. And they weren't orderly and they weren't neat and tidy, okay? When people are starving and their children are starving, which we came across many who were, when their children are bloated stomachs and their hair is falling out because they haven't eaten in weeks, they are not orderly. They are passionate about getting food for themselves and their children. And they will fight and they will kill each other for a bag of rice. And Jesus is saying... Those who are really wanting to follow me will be passionate and fight for my kingdom. They won't just be fine being a Sunday Christian. They will want it manifested in all of their life. And his promises, they will be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and they will be filled. Are you feeling empty of God? Are you feeling far away from God? Have you been coming to church all your life, but nothing really changes? You constantly feel miserable and unhappy? Are you seeking after and thirsting and hungering for righteousness, for God's kingdom? What kingdom are you living in, Christian? Are you living every day in the kingdom of God or are you still too focused on the kingdom of darkness? Do you hate your own personal sin or is it just a minor annoyance? Do people that know you say you walk in humility and meekness or must you let everybody know that you're in charge? Do you want more of what the world is offering, more uh, power and more pleasure and more money? Or do you want more of what God is offering you? Jesus sees the crowds. And he left them. And he went up to the mountain and sat down. And his disciples came. And he gave them a message. If you truly want to follow me, you will take my spirit upon you. I will help you. I won't give you religion. I won't give you just a sense of morality. I will manifest myself through you so that the world sees there is a God who is real. Which group are you in? That's what I want us to walk away 
and think. God, well, your words are heavy, Lord. They're simple. They struck me, Lord. I realized this week that often I don't mourn over my own personal sin. I don't mourn over the way sometimes I treat my children or the way I sometimes treat my wife. That hurts them and hurts you. And I don't want to be like that, God. I want to change. I don't want to be ruled by the world. I want to be ruled by you. And I hope that that is the desire of everyone in here today, Lord. And so I pray for maybe a person in here who they just come to church and they don't really know what I'm talking about. Well, I pray that they would know as they probably have eyes and can see that the world is full of so much sadness and misery that they would know there is a God who wants to save them and live in them and change them. There's a God who wants to use them. I pray that if they are that person, they would simply cry out to you to say to you, Jesus, I am a sinner and I need you to change me. I pray for those Christians. Lord, I love these men and women. Some of them I'm just getting to know. Some of them I know very well. I know that each of us in some way or shape or form, isn't following all of these things. We don't even necessarily have a desire to do them. I pray that that would change today. That they would, like I had came to the place this week, Lord, say, I really want to live for you, Lord. Help us, Christ, as we look to follow you and help us to be actually people that the world stops and takes notice of whether they hate us or they're drawn to us, that they can't ignore us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon audio. For more resources or to connect with us, visit calvarygravenhurst.com.